This is an ABC podcast. Hello there and welcome to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer and thanks for tuning in. While great sea changes of foreign policy opinion are rare, they take place perhaps once in a generation. But there's ample evidence one's taking place now in both Great Britain and the United States. The British have now formally left the European Union, but it's still not clear what a post-Brexit foreign policy looks like. Could it really lead to an economic disaster, as the Remainers still insist? And what's the significance of the UK government's decision to allow some Huawei equipment in its 5G network? What are the security risks? Stay with us for our discussion with a prominent Tory legislator, Tom Tugendhat. But first, the United States. Before Americans cast their votes for president in November's election, the Democrats have to decide who should nominate their party in the race against President Donald Trump. Now, that happens in 50 states and territories through voting contests called primaries and caucuses. Now, the first race was this week in Iowa, and there were, well, at least for two days, no results. Extraordinary. There was outright confusion as Democratic officials cited quality control efforts. To say this has caused Democratic anxiety, it's an understatement. Note the irony. The Democrats have spent more than three years questioning the legitimacy of the 2016 election, yet now they see the legitimacy of their own democratic process questioned. <laughs> well, for more on Iowa and what it means for the shape of US foreign policy, let's turn to our panel. Doug Bandow is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington and a former special assistant to President Ronald Reagan. G'day, Doug. Happy to be on. Gorana Gurchik is a lecturer in the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney and the United States Study Centre. Welcome back to RN, Gorana. Great to be here. Let's start with this uh, fiasco in Iowa. What did you make of it, Doug? Oh, it's a disaster for the Democratic Party. It's embarrassing. It's an embarrassment for the United States as well. And uh, frankly, it's a victory for Donald Trump. It allows him to make jokes about the, uh, the Democrats. It makes it very difficult for them to be taken seriously. And it creates conspiracy theories within the Democratic Party. It's very bad all around. Well, talking about conspiracy theories, momentum appears to be with Bernie Sanders. He's the socialist anti-establishment candidate. Looks like he's more or less running on par with a Pete Buttigieg, the former mayor in Indiana. Um, but he's a favourite now to win New Hampshire in February. But his supporters, Garana, think the party establishment is trying to block their candidate. Plausible? Well, this obviously goes back to 2016 when we saw a really heated uh, primaries race between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. We all know how that went and uh, for a pretty uh, substantial probably portion of Bernie Sanders' supporters, this is basically a chance to do the right thing <laughs> now that uh, in, in 2016 did, they didn't get uh, uh, the result that they wanted. So uh, obviously any sort of uh, uh, kind of... <laughs> uh, Issues with, with any of the primaries for them will be seen probably as a Democratic National Committee's way of preventing Bernie Sanders from winning the party nomination. Yes, but at the same time, the establishment candidate, Joe Biden, the former vice president, distant fourth, is he damaged goods, Doug Bandow? Oh, he's very damaged. You know, the, he's a, a two-term vice president. He was in the U.S. Senate for many years. He's someone who has been tabbed as a front runner. He's led in the uh, the national polls. You know, it's one thing to come in second. You know, 
Iowa's an odd state. It's an agricultural state, a small Midwestern state. It's really not representative. But to come in fourth, you know, behind the two progressives and Buttigieg mm. is, I think, extremely damaging. He's moving on to New Hampshire, where, in fact, he is you know, behind in the polls. You know, if he loses both of these, you go down to South Carolina at the end of the month. You know, he's only five points ahead in the last poll. If he loses that, he has real problems. But then the, the, it's conceivable that the other establishment candidate, Mike Bloomberg, he's the billionaire, the former New York mayor. He's the big unknown here. He now, it seems, wisely was not on the ballot in Iowa. <laughs> but his supporters see early success for Sanders as beneficial for Bloomberg, wagering that it will, you know, force moderates like Biden and Buttigieg to drop out along the way and clear the way for a late swing to Bloomberg. Garana. So the theory goes, um, and obviously when things come to to be tested in practice, we we shall see what happens, especially after Super Tuesday. But there is this uh, certainly a theory that really is Biden dwindles, um, that this leaves space uh, for uh, Bloomberg. And especially if it comes to Wisconsin in July for the Democratic National Convention, mm. uh, and if there is uh, a number of uh, contenders still, there is no one with majority, there might be someone with plurality, Mike Bloomberg could certainly emerge as a kingmaker. And maybe this is the sort of strategy that uh, his campaign is And that may on. explain, Doug, that after this Iowa debacle, he Bloomberg's doubling down on his yeah. advertising spend, but how deep does his support actually run? Well, Bloomberg is, I think, will have trouble getting a lot of personal support. On the other hand, he may be seen as the best alternative. You know, somebody who is more centrist in orientation, he's smart, he's presentable, and he has a lot of money. He can match any spending from Donald Trump. The problem is he's run as a Republican before. He's kind of a cold fish. He's not very personable. You know, he has problems as a candidate. But again, we're in a different world. Mm. And for Democrats, if you're looking for an alternative to the progressives, if you're scared of the idea of a millionaire socialist representing your party, Bloomberg might be the guy in July, or he can be the guy to anoint the person who gets the Now, you've had dealings with Bloomberg. What's the nature of your, uh, of, of your dealings with him? Well, Bloomberg was a couple of years ago bringing in foreign policy people to argue issues. I mean, in many ways, it was quite impressive. He sat with us at Bloomberg, along with he had a foreign policy advisor, and uh, he brought three of us in, in my case, to talk about Syria. The man is clearly well-informed. Mm -hmm. He understands issues. He's smart. He's engaged. He was down to earth. The problem is, from his standpoint, I think, of being a presidential candidate is typically being smart and in, in that sense doesn't really get you a lot of votes in a way that being personable, you know, empathizing, these sorts of things. And he's not really that kind of a character. But I was impressed with him. He struck me as somebody who was competent, who, if as president, you know, could very well do a good job, depending on what you thought of him on the issues. So I think he'll, he, he will make a mark in this race. He's a smart guy. He's willing to spend tens of millions of dollars. You can't ignore it. My guests are Doug Bandow from the Cato Institute in Washington and Garana Gertschik. She's from the University of Sydney and the U.S. Studies Centre. Now, meanwhile, uh, President Trump delivered his State of the Union address this week. He cited impressive economic statistics to show that America's back, yet he's never really polled above 50%. I think there's a Gallup poll this week shows he's about 49%, which is the highest rating that he's had, I think, during the last three years. Uh, Garana, why does he remain so vulnerable? You have to place some of those figures about the kind of renewed sense of uh, um, optimism into uh, some 
context and in and into kind of relations where uh, the society as a whole is and uh, the United States at the moment is at the record 50 years highest income inequality those were the figures that were published just last year uh, the kind of rising tide didn't quite uh, lift all the boats and um, Donald Trump is certainly presiding over an economy that's expanding but certainly not at the rate that uh, you know, he himself has put forward as well, the hang kind on, of but let's goal. look at the numbers that he cites. Doug, 7 million jobs gained, record low 3.5% unemployment, more women in, un in employment than men, record low unemployment for African-Americans, Hispanics, Asian-Americans and veterans, the return of US manufacturing jobs, accelerating wage growth for the bottom 12% of wage earners and for millennials. That's a pretty good record, isn't it? No, it gives him something to run on. You can argue about whether or not he deserves credit for it, but in practice, the American people typically, you know, credit the you know the person who's president for what the economy is doing. So that positions him, in, I think, in a strong place. His problem is, of course, is he's a royal jerk. That for a lot of people, you cannot like him. You may respect the job that he's done. You might like the results. But in the end, he's really a horrid person. And I think that's the challenge. If he had didn't have quite such an edge, he'd be at 55 or 60%. His challenge then is to make sure that on November this coming year, that at that moment, he's got more people voting for him, just enough at least to get him through the Electoral College and to victory. And it was, we saw this in the 2018 midterm elections that Trump, or at least the Republicans, lost a lot of votes in those suburban uh, metropolitan areas among college Republicans, moderate Republicans, right? Grana? Absolutely right. So the purple districts around, yeah, your Pennsylvanias or uh, New Jersey's and so on, um, if the president is unpalatable to uh, your, you know, suburban woman voter uh, in some of these uh, kind of areas around metropolitan centres, chances are that those representatives and senators will be in danger. Yes, but if Bernie Sanders is president, he might scare those same metropolitan uh, uh, suburban voters as well. No, look, everything is a question of compared to what. Trump <laughs> won in 2016 because a lot of people didn't like Hillary Clinton frankly, for very good reasons. I mean, this is somebody whose record goes back decades and from a lot of people's standpoint is not a very good record in terms of everything from corruption to ideology to behavior. So she had a lot of baggage. So Trump won that, mm. not because people liked him. He won it because there were enough people who basically hated her more than they hated him. Okay, back to Bernie Sanders, foreign policy. This is a fellow who's been a long-time critic, like you, Doug Bandow, of American global leadership. He opposed Bush 41's Gulf War, 1991, Bush 43's Iraq invasion, 2003. But unlike you, he opposed NAFTA and GATT. Is this the socialist version of America first? Well, in many ways, yes. That I mean, a number of Sanders voters voted for Trump. They're both populists. They're both taking on the establishment. And on international issues, there really is a certain amount of resentment there against the establishment, against established policy, certainly against the endless wars. If they are running against each other, you're going to see American neoconservatives and very hawkish folks not having a good alternative. It'd be a very well. This is election. fascinating. So if Sanders wins the nomination, and obviously he's got a decent chance, then you'd have two critics of American global leadership, Garana. They'd face each other off in November. What are the key similarities and differences between, say, Sanders and Trump on foreign policy? 
Well, first of all, um, I would say that Bernie Sanders is not a unilateralist. So Donald Trump uh, is very much uh, a kind of proven critic of any sort of multilateral, uh, uh, the idea of multilateral co cooperation and uh, certainly any uh, inter intergovernmental or international institutions, regimes, uh, so on and so forth. Bernie Sanders still believes in some of these institutions. If anything, some of his campaign uh, platforms speeches and, and policy documents have shown that uh, the way that he and, for that matter, Elizabeth Warren, the way that they see the world is uh, through some sort of resuscitation of uh, elements of this liberal international order, at, at least in the way that it's governed by institutions. But Bernie Sanders is certainly someone who, similar to Donald Trump, obviously, mm. is questioning whether the United States needs to have such a huge military footprint uh, around the world, even though, again, Trump is here, you know, uh, um, in problems between the, the sort of promises and uh, ultimately what he's delivered. Uh, and when it comes to trade, uh, probably Bernie Sanders's criticism of some of these trade deals is much more akin to the usual leftist arguments, whereas for Donald Trump, it's much more about the way that he sees the world through kind of lens of zero-sum game mm -hmm. where he has seen basically everyone ripping America off. Sure, but they're both protectionists they, though, aren't they? They absolutely are, but I'm I'm just saying that yeah. Bernie Sanders' um, ideological, ideological or philosophical stance, if you wish, is one that kind of sympathizes more with labor uh, okay, rather than Okay, then final Trump. question to you, Doug Bandow. To the extent that these anti-intervention anti-global leadership views prevail. This is the Trump-Sanders world, and I take Garana's point, there are distinctions there. But nevertheless, to the extent that those views represent middle America, doesn't that suggest Americans are rethinking their nation's, you know, what's been an activist international role for the last few decades? Well, I think the American people, broadly speaking, have been rethinking this for quite some time. They've never been as enthused about this as elites in Washington. What is happening here is that if you have both presidential candidates representing a very different set of views, the elites in Washington suddenly find themselves without a position. And I think that's the transformation. And the presidents matter in foreign policy. They can change the debate. You could see a very different cast of the debate and the arguments in foreign policy in the years ahead. Well, the Democratic presidential race is up for grabs, that's for sure. And it's turning out to be a watershed moment in modern American political history. Doug Garana, thanks so much for being on ABC Radio. Absolutely. Pleasure. Doug Bandow is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute in Washington and a former special assistant to President Ronald Reagan. And Garana Gurchik is jointly appointed lecturer in the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney and the United States Study Centre. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Now, last week, Boris Johnson decided to grant Huawei limited access to the UK's 5G network. Now, remember, Australia and the US strongly opposed the decision, arguing it threatens not just Britain's national security, but also the integrity of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing agreement. Are those fears justified? Or is everyone getting just a little paranoid? And also, last week, Britain left the European Union, three and a half years since the referendum. Now, leaving the EU, that marks arguably the biggest change in British national life since 1973, 
That was the year of my next guest's birth. <laughs> That's when Britain joined the European Union. So what kind of British foreign policy should we expect? Tom Tugendhat is chair of the UK House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee. He's been a Conservative MP since 2015, and he's a former army officer in the British Army. Tom, welcome back to Between the Lines. Tom, it's really good to be back. Thanks. Well, let's start with Huawei. Last week, as I mentioned, the Prime Minister decided to grant Huawei limited access to the UK's network. I think the share of the market is capped 35% for each of Britain's four mobile phone operators. And it will be banned from core parts of the network, like nuclear and military facilities. So isn't that a compromise that's pragmatic? Well, it's, a, it's certainly a compromise. I'm not quite sure it goes far enough, though, because for many of us, what we're seeking is uh, to have no Huawei participation at all. Now, this is, uh, this is something that I know the Australian government and the US government are already doing, and I think that the UK government should do the same. OK, but you've talked about letting the fox into the hen house, uh, nesting the dragon. Your uh, Conservative colleague, Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary, he said that market failure has meant there is simply no viable alternative to Huawei. The second best uh, options, of course, are Sweden's Ericsson and Nokia from Finland. Um, they're just not up to scratch in terms of the technology. That's Rab's argument. Uh, how would you respond to that? Well, that's not quite his argument. What his argument is that um, the Nokia and Ericsson systems are fine, but they don't have the capacity to roll it out fast enough. Now, I share that concern, uh, and, and I suspect, and I'm not the expert, but I strongly suspect that he's, he's right on that. That's what the experts tell me. But the problem is that uh, Huawei is already quite embedded in our 3G and 4G technology. So although what I'm asking for is uh, a change, I'm not expecting the government to go to zero tomorrow. I'm asking them to show me a flight path to zero. So how do you get this, this, uh, this product that's been in our system since 2003, let's not forget, Huawei first entered the UK market in 2003, how do you get it to zero in a reasonable period of time? That's the challenge. Yeah, well, we've had these these issues in Australia to a lesser extent. I mean, Huawei's been part of the 4G system in this country and, of course, in the UK for years and hasn't been really an issue. What are the specific risks raised by uh, 5G technology? I mean, what makes it so different from, say, 4G in terms of cybersecurity risks? Right, well, 4G is basically a faster version of 3G, which is a faster version of 2G and so on. And what that means is it's the handset or the unit that communicates to a base station, and it's it's a pretty it's a pretty binary link. If you imagine it, it's like it's like a bicycle wheel where there's a, a core and everything else is on on the rim of the bicycle and connected by spokes. Five G is different. Five G is where you have multiple bicycle wheels, if you like, all overlapping. So it's much more of an inter, in, in, interwoven network. And the challenge there is where is the core? Where is the edge? How do you make that distinction? It's really hard. Now, at the moment, the technical experts are saying, look, you can, you know, you can protect this, you can protect that, and so on, and, they, and they're making the argument here in the UK uh, that actually there is such a difference. The Australian, uh, uh, what's it called, Aspie, um, mm. has made the argument that that simply doesn't apply, and the ASD, the Australian uh, Signals Directorate, uh, which our equivalent is GCHQ, uh, says that uh, that doesn't work either. Now, what I'm very far from clear on is what's the difference between the intelligence these guys are seeing? Because the Five Eyes Network, we share all of this. So if Australia says it's not safe and the National Security uh, Agency in, in the United States says it's not safe, I'm not sure what GCHQ is seeing that says, no, it's fine. 
Yeah, well, I mean, this is this is really why I've got you on the program because Australia, it's not just the United States that's raised concerns about Huawei. As I said in my introduction, Tom, Australia has been out in front on this issue. An essential part of the discussion here has been that allowing you know Huawei into the 5G network, that would risk the integrity of our intelligence gathering abilities and uh, I suppose by extension, the integrity of the very important Five Eyes Agreement this is Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the US and the UK. It's how we all share intelligence. Do you think that uh, the Boris Johnson's decision here puts that at risk? Well, I don't think it does in a fundamental sense because actually the real underpinning of the Five Eyes Intelligence Network is the fact that we trust each other, right? We, we think in the same way about the world. We see the world uh, in a pretty similar fashion. We're, we're all democratic, liberal democratic powers uh, of various kinds and we you know and we value you know open trade and 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 uh, human rights and, and and various other aspects of the rule of law but this is a challenge and it's a challenge that we've got to address now 5g is not going to sorry Huawei is not going to be in in the um, in the secure systems that's clear and it isn't now uh, but and here's the here's the other difficulty 5g is not just if you like it's not just a cable it's actually much more than that. So quite a lot of the 5G that's being rolled out in the UK today is being rolled out via broadband in your home. So you install a fibre broadband connection, so you've got an ultra-high-speed fibre broadband connection, you then plug a, a Huawei box in at home, and there you go. You've got three, the company that uh, supplies quite a lot of mobile phones in the UK. That's how three rolls out their 5G technology. Now, at the moment, 100% of it is Huawei. Now, that is a challenge because if we're allowing that to happen now then how do others get into the market? Now, here's where Dom is absolutely right. This is a market failure. But there is a reason for the market failure. It's not just that the UK, Australia and, and, and the US have been asleep on the, on, on the watch, although you know, we haven't been as supportive of our own domestic 5G industries as we should have been. It's also because China has looked at this for the long term and quite understandably has very, very heavily invested in Huawei to achieve market dominance. And, and that's what they've managed. Yeah, but we've had a guest on this program about a year or two ago from Huawei. And he just made the point that Huawei is uh, a completely independent company. It's never yeah, received. Yeah, that's not true. Well, this is what his argument was, uh, which I suppose you'd say he would say that. But, 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 the, but he says that they've never received preferable treatment from Beijing. What exactly are your concerns about that relationship, Tom? So uh, to, to, to address that, you've got to understand the nature of the Chinese economy. So first of all, the uh, Huawei is owned, uh, as it claims, by its workers. Well, that's true in the sense that it's owned by a union and its workers must be a member of the union. So fine, except the union is a part of the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese Communist Party runs the Chinese state. So it's a, it's a little bit, it's a little bit uh, like saying that you've, uh, you, you've sold your house to somebody, uh, but you're <laughs> the only one who's allowed to live there. All the rights belong to you. And at no stage does that independent person have any rights over it at all. It's like, in what sense is that a sale? It's not a sale, not in the sense that you and I would recognise. So the, the real question is, where does the control come from? Well, the control comes in various different ways. Huawei's subsidies have come quite understandably from investment through uh, a commercial bank loan, but a commercial bank loan, again, underwritten by the Chinese state, you know, because the banks are not private enterprises. So if you go round the circle, you realise that none of these things are private enterprises in a way that you and I would understand them. So 
it's not state subsidy in the sense that you and I would see a state subsidy, as in here is a loan from uh, the Treasury to company X. It's here is a loan from a bank the government owns to a company the government owns in order to achieve an aim the government has ordered. And that's the way in which this is a state company. This is Tom Switzer on Between the Lines on the ABC's Radio National, and I'm chatting with Tom Tugendhat. He's a British Conservative MP. He's chairman of the UK House Foreign Affairs Committee. We've been talking about Huawei. But now's as good a time as any, Tom, to remind everyone that last week, Britain finally left the European Union. Uh, I'm right in saying that you voted to remain in 2016, correct? I did, yeah. Well, how do you respond to those fellow Remainers who insist that Brexit will be an economic disaster? Well, like everything in life, it depends how we do it. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I am very, very confident that the British people and our partners around the world will, make, uh, will, will do well over the next... Uh, but what about if the immigration declines and, say, Brexit imposes new trade friction with Brussels? Well, it will impose trade friction with Brussels. There's no, there's no great secret about that. If you leave a free trade area, guess what? Free trade gets harder. I mean, that's, that's, that's not exactly a secret. And when free trade is harder, that often dampens growth. It can do, it can do, but it depends what you replace it with, right? And at the moment, we're talking a lot to uh, Australia and, uh, you know, the United States, Canada, and indeed countries, uh, other countries around the world, about how we deepen trade partnerships. Now, I'm particularly keen that we join the CPTPP, uh, as it's now called, and uh, that we develop uh, much stronger relationships with countries around the world. And I've been talking to various people, including the, uh, my, well, sort of opposite number, and a good friend, the rather brilliant Andrew Hastie, uh, the MP mm -hmm. for Canning, about various ways that we can work together, not just on Huawei, which is much more an area that we share a common, uh, a common view on, but also on areas like this. Because actually, the thing that many people don't get is the proximity between the relationship uh, between you know, Australians and, 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 and Brits is not, just, uh, is not just sort of cultural, if you like. It's not just that we watch the same TV programs and listen to the same music. It's that because we see the world in a similar way, we're able to overlap in uh, national security, in trade, in many other areas. And it means that our parliaments find it pretty easy to get on. With yeah, but other. what's in it for Australia, though, Tom? I mean, uh, you know, since Britain joined the common market nearly five decades ago, I mean, our political leaders on both sides have recognised our destiny lies with Asia. We've moved on well, from the mother country. Well, you've, 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 I'm not quite sure who is the mother country anymore. We learn so much from Australia these days. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure the mother-daughter relationship works in the same way anymore. Um, certainly legal example comes so much from your uh, Supreme Court that, uh, that you know, we're, we're, we're learning every day. Um, but look, I think, there's a, I think there's a huge overlap in, in what we want to do together. And the idea that your destiny lies in Asia and not uh, with countries who see the world in the same way, I don't, I don't think that's right. I think it lies with Asia and with countries who see the world in the same way. So, you know, I think your partnership with uh, Canada is hugely important. Your partnership with the United States is hugely important. And I see no reason why the UK shouldn't be absolutely part of that too. I mean, you know, we are lily pads for each other rather than being simply satellites of each other. OK, now on this program <clears throat> over the last few years, we've had uh, Brexiteers such as uh, Simon Heffer, uh, Andrew Roberts, uh, Isabel Oakeshott, uh, and they say that Brexit means, uh, you know, Britain will be more confident in the world. But if you look at this recent YouGov poll, it asked Remain voters at which of the five stages of grief they now found themselves registered only 30% who had reached acceptance of the fact of Britain's departure from the EU, 19% are in denial, 16% are angry, 25% are depressed. Uh, Tom, that doesn't sound like a confident and optimistic and united British people. 
Yeah, look, that's there's no great secret. The the last three years have been pretty divisive, and for those of us in Parliament, it's been, yeah, there've been some pretty bleak moments. It's been pretty unpleasant. Um, but look, the great advantage of having a, an eighty seat majority, which the Prime Minister now does, means that actually we can get on with stuff. And 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 by getting on with things, and I don't just mean Brexit and trade stuff, but getting on with you know uh, reforms uh, in terms of healthcare and social security and things like that, we can actually bring the party together again, and we can bring the country together again. Because the, the truth is that a lot of things have stalled in the last three or four years. So you may have you know you may have been pretty ambivalent about Brexit, but you saw, for example, that because of the infighting, you, your hospital hasn't got fixed or your, you know, or your school hasn't got the investment. And now we're able to focus on those things. And I think that will make the difference and bring the, bring the country back together again. Tom, as always, it's great to chat. Anytime, Tom. Tom Tugendhat is chairman of the UK House Foreign Affairs Committee. Well, that's the programme this week. And before you tune in again next week, why don't you download the ABC Listen app or just visit our website, abc.net.au slash rn. And follow the prompts to Between the Lines, where, of course, you can listen to any of our past episodes over the past six years. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.